You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda. And we're back this week with a special podcast with uh, two co-hosts. Um, joining us is Shannon Tiazzi, our editor-in-chief. Shannon, thanks for joining me. Always a pleasure, Ankit. And my usual co-host, Prashant. How's it going, Prashant? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. And uh, both of you just got back from a trip to Taiwan, so uh, you've definitely uh, been breathing the air in East Asia. And for this episode, um, I think it's our first episode in October, actually, uh, I did want to turn to a speech by former um, or current U.S. Vice President Mike Pence at the Hudson Institute on the U.S. relationship with China. And uh, this speech really gained a lot of attention in the region and in the United States for outlining the Trump administration's um, approach to competition with China. And competition really is the key word here. Uh, It's been something that the administration and senior officials have been using a lot more to talk about the relationship with China. Matt Pottinger at the Chinese embassy in D.C. uh, quoted Confucius and said that it was right to call something what it is with China, and the U.S. and Chinese are in a competitive dynamic right now. Um, But I do want to interrogate, you know, there's a lot to talk about here. Specifically, uh, Pence outlined a laundry list of issues that the United States took umbrage with when it came to China, everything from China's treatment of the Uyghur uh, in uh, Xinjiang, to uh, the issue of Taiwan, the South China Sea, cyber issues, Chinese trade practices, of course. We're still in the middle of a trade war. Um, but Shannon, uh, let's just cut right to the discussion today. So uh, you wrote a piece for The um, for the Diplomat uh, looking specifically at, I think, what, which was one of the most interesting issues to come up in the speech, which was the issue of Chinese political interference in the United States, which um, President Trump had actually raised uh, during the United Nations uh, General Assembly when he at the Security Council brought this up with Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi sort of caught off guard and denying this entirely. But obviously a day earlier, Trump had tweeted uh, his impressions of the China Daily inserts in, I believe it was um, Iowa. And uh, so, you know, he became aware of these kinds of long-term efforts that have been ongoing. But I think, you know, there's this issue that you brought up in your piece of interfering in democracy and interfering in elections. And I believe President Trump's allegation was directed more towards the latter about the kinds of things that Russia sort of undertook in 2016. So I was wondering if you could maybe begin there and then we'll sort of expand the conversation out and talk about some of the other dynamics uh, coming up here. But what was your impression of the um, election interference issue as Pence brought it up? Um, honestly, I thought that the case as Pence presented it was was quite weak. Um, we don't know if that's all that there is to it. It's quite possible that there's still information that's classified that has led to this strong conclusion that China is interfering in the election, which as you noticed is different from an interfering in democracy. Um, China has interfered in um, politics in a much more direct way in other countries. So it's certainly possible. Uh, if you look at the conversations that Australia has been having about Chinese political interference, you know that centers on direct political payments by individuals with ties to the Chinese government to Australian politicians. That's you know a fairly clear-cut example. Um, there's also a vote-buying scandal that's unfolding in Vancouver, Canada right now, um, involving again individuals who are believed to have links to the Chinese government, ne- possibly paying um, Chinese Canadians to vote for specific candidates in elections. That's not the sort of thing that Pence is talking about. Um, The only really concrete example that he listed was the China Daily 
insert in the Des Moines Register. And, you know, you might quibble about that being misleading, um, but honestly, it's it's fairly standard practice. The Washington Post for years has hosted these China Daily inserts. Um, it's above the board. It's completely legal. Um, they're not trying to hide anything. <laughs> you know, it, it's very obvious what they're doing. And honestly, if you have a problem with it, you have a problem with the way that these inserts are being labeled, and that's the fault of the host newspaper, not the fault of China Daily. Um, and the other example he gave was the fact that China is targeting its retaliatory tariffs at um, counties, states that voted for President Trump. And again, that's the fairly standard order of business, um, and that's not akin to election interference in the sense that's become current um, you know, with regards to Russia you know, interfering in social media discussions and potentially colluding, uh, which obviously is very controversial and something that's under investigation here in the United States. Um, what was interesting about that point, the election interference, was that it was really the only new part of Pence's speech. Um, everything else has been brought up again and again in previous forms and previous speeches by U.S. officials. So while it was really quite... Um, interesting to see it all put together in one place. Uh, as you mentioned, you could really get a sense of the breadth of U.S. complaints. The election interference is really the only new charge that Pence was bringing against China, and I didn't find it particularly convincing. Mm -hmm. Well, so, you know, I think broadly there is a sense that the U.S.-China relationship is on a downward spiral, which is something I think we had pretty clear hints of as of late 2017, things accelerated by May this year uh, with the disinvitation to the RIMPAC exercises. We had Mattis' speech at the Shangri-La Dialogue, again, outlining sort of the military aspects of what China was doing that the United States found objectionable. And just in recent weeks, we've had a canceled diplomatic and security dialogue. We've had the incident in the South China Sea involving USS Decatur near Gavin Reef, almost in a collision with a Chinese Type 52C frigate, um, which came actually a day after the State Department approved a possible sale of military aviation components to Taiwan. Um, and we have an ever-escalating trade war. We've had canceled military-to-military -military dialogue. Um, and it really appears that along several axes, the U.S.-China relationship is declining. Um, so, Prashant, I wanted to sort of flip it around to you now and ask you a bit about the regional perception. Um, and, you know, we can talk about Southeast Asia, but also, I guess, countries in East Asia like Japan and South Korea also have a stake in this. In fact, the whole region does. Um, what is the broad perception of how these countries are going to manage the fallout of this competition between the United States and China, especially as there's a growing perception now uh, in the aftermath of Pence's speech that the United States might not be so shy about asking countries to basically choose between the United States and China, which is something that's long been a part of U.S. rhetoric, saying that we we do not explicitly ask countries to do that. But now it really, you know, we are sort of getting closer. We're, we're hearing the word Cold War being thrown around. And really what made the Cold War the Cold War was that you were either with one block or the other or you were non-aligned. And now the costs of non-alignment, um, given the economic interdependence and the breadth of the U.S.-China economic relationship, is really not practical in uh, East Asia or even South Asia. Uh, so I'm wondering uh, what your sense is of how various regional states, uh, you know, partners, allies, and adversaries alike, are, are reacting to the uh, unfolding geopolitical dynamics right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this, this kind of gets to the point that you were raising earlier, which is that, I mean, there's a whole diverse array of, of actors in the Asia-Pacific, so they'll have obviously some deferring policies and, and thinking in terms of how the relationship evolves. 
whether you're a U.S. ally or partner, or whether you're closer to the Chinese, I think your your response would vary. But broadly, um, I think there's a mix of concern, but also confusion about where U.S.-China relations are. I mean, if this was happening in a very ordinary, traditional administration, I think there would be a lot more clarity from countries as to what's going on. But the fact is, you're ha you're having this U.S.-China competition dynamic going on, when there's so much uncertainty about what the Trump administration is is doing uh, in the in the Asia Pacific. Uh, you are in a season where midterms are coming up. So the fact that Pence delivered his address and when we're seeing this toughening of China policy coming so close to this kind of deadline means that I think some folks are confused as to whether how much of this will continue or sustain beyond that. Um, and we also have this, the other variables, right? This relationship that uh, President Trump has with President Xi um, and how that fits into all of this. I mean, they're going to be meeting again uh, next month. And so that there's all these various variables that I think these states are throwing around and figuring out, okay, is this, and the key question really is, is this really a sustainable change in U.S. approach towards China that's going to endure beyond the Trump administration? Is this something which, which you said, I mean, a, a pursuit towards some kind of Cold War-like phenomenon? Or is this something which is kind of a mixed bag, right? Is this, I mean, traditional notions about Chinese behavior that have been worries that have existed predating the Trump administration, but also mixed with some manifestations that are unique to Trump and Trump's advisors that may not sustain beyond this. And I think that's something which countries are struggling to grasp with. And that matters because if you want these countries to have clarity in their approaches, they need to understand what you are doing and whether this is going to sustain. And if they don't have a sense of that, it's going to be very difficult for the United States to expect them to change their behavior. Mm -hmm. Well, so I think you're bringing us now around to the million dollar question, which is, are the United States and China headed for a new Cold War? And that's been thrown around a lot in headlines after Pence's speech, like I said. Um, I'm a little skeptical of that proposition. Um, and I'll just briefly state a few reasons, but I want to hear from uh, both of you about this um, assertion about a new Cold War. But really, I mean, what what Pence was describing, uh, you know, is a laundry list of grievances. And like Shannon said, a lot of it wasn't new. And competition between states, and especially between uh, rising powers and powers in relative decline, which I think appropriately captures um, the dynamic between China and the United States, and uh, China does have revisionist objectives, uh, at least in the region. Um, I think there's a broader debate about China's globally revisionist objectives. Um, but broadly, what Pence outlined didn't strike me as the kind of competition that the United States and the Soviet Union were engaged in during the Cold War. I mean, on the material side, obviously, we significantly have um, fewer apparent um, military escalation and uh, nuclear dangers in particular between the United States and China. But more importantly, the kind of existential struggle, I mean, on the U.S. side, first of all, during the Cold War, you had sort of a bipartisan whole of society consensus that communism in the Soviet Union was an evil to be resisted. And the Trump administration really hasn't made that case just yet. And certainly the Democrats aren't on board with this yet, although we might be sort of starting to see some signs of that. Actually, a few days after Mike Pence gave a speech, Bernie Sanders gave a pretty interesting speech um, at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins, making the case that the struggle for the United States now was to stand up for free and open societies versus authoritarian societies. But what, what was interesting about that speech was that it only named China once. So if the speech was about China, it, it certainly wasn't made explicit. Um, so maybe we are heading more in that direction where the challenges that arise from an authoritarian and more assertive China on the world stage become more apparent. But also another feature of the Cold War, uh, you know, 
was um, U.S. pursuits to directly influence and call on governments to reject the influence of the Soviet Union going as far as to sponsor covert um, regime change campaigns around the world as well. If you look at the way the United States has been talking to countries, uh, partners, allies, adversaries alike about you know, accepting money from China under the Belt and Road Initiative, we're certainly a long way away from uh, any kind of uh, dramatic steps being taken towards um, installing pro-U.S. Uh, leaders, um, so to speak. So uh, there are a lot of ways, and, you know, I know that analogies are always imperfect. We often hear the Belt and Road compared to the Marshall Plan, and I'd say maybe this is less egregious than that comparison. But um, I'm at least not convinced that this is the start of a new Cold War. Um, I do think it's the start of an intensified era of competition between the United States and China, but I really just don't think those are the same things. But I'd love to hear from you guys on that. Uh, so, Shannon, what's your impression? Are we about to head into a new Cold War with China? As you said, analogies are always imperfect. So you can, of course, point to the Cold War uh, between the U.S. and Russia and come up with you know, a million ways that that's not what's happening with the U.S. and China. Um, I think where the comparison is useful is that um, it's sort of shorthand for saying you are having an intense competition for global leadership between you know, arguably the two most powerful countries in the world. And um, that's largely over ideological factors. And if you look at a lot of the things that Pence was talking about in his speech, from economic issues to um, military, you know, freedom of navigation, freedom of overflight in particular, and of course, human rights, you're talking about different ideologies, different ways of viewing the world, and really different ways of thinking about how countries should conduct themselves on the international stage. This is about rulemaking, which is something that we've talked a lot about with regards to China. Um, the U.S. essentially wants the world order to remain as it is, um, what you know the U.S. would refer to as the liberal world order, which is what it put in place after World War II. Uh, China, if, if you want to take the most charitable stance, wants all developing countries to have a greater say in this order, uh, which it's hard to argue against, frankly. If you take a less charitable view, China itself wants to have a larger role in rulemaking. And if given that role, again, in the least charitable view, it's going to advance authoritarianism. It's going to advance this sort of national championed view of uh, economics where state-owned enterprises are given all of these advantages and countries are allowed to restrict market access on nebulous national security reasons. Um, and of course, the human rights issues that China has always been famous for. But now that the U.S. has other reasons to uh, view China with suspicion, the human rights issues are coming back to the fore in the relationship. So in the sense that this is broader than any one issue, this isn't going to be solved by a trade deal, no matter how great. This isn't going to be solved by, you know, confidence-building measures in the military realm. This is, is, I think, an ideological struggle at its core. And in that sense, I think the analogy is a useful one. Okay. Um, Prashant, what's what's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I would add the the domestic component of this in terms of U.S. policy, um, which you know, adding to what Shannon said about um, this Cold War struggle, um, if you look at the debate between the United States and and the Soviet Union and uh, the post Cold War debate in U.S. foreign policy, it's been this sort of uh, perennial search for a clarifying threat or issue that everyone can kind of get behind on a mission. And that's, I think, where 
some folks, particularly in the U.S. foreign policy establishment, kind of look on the Cold War a little bit fondly because it was a an era that was more predictable and certain where you just had one clarifying threat. And I think that's trying to be mapped onto now as China as being the challenge. Now, that that's fundamentally more complicated because I, I don't think, even though we're seeing this debate play out in a way that seems to suggest that U.S. approach is very clear towards China, I think it's much more difficult still to make that case. Um, there are divisions still among folks, even in Washington, about how to approach China. Um, there's divisions in the region about uh, whether uh, folks are more comfortable with a China-centric order or a U.S.-centric order or really a mix of both. And so I think you, you are seeing this attempt at clarity, but I'm not so sure that that is actually being played out by the realities on the ground. And I think there's various aspects to this. As Shannon pointed out, you can point to the fact that there's a lot more economic interdependence between the United States and China, but also in terms of China and the region. Um, and the Belt and Road, as we've discussed multiple times on this podcast, is an example of that. But also domestically in the United States, I think that we're trying to have this moment about clarity on the China threat when we have uncertainty about U.S. policy and the U.S. role in the world. And so that's the other complicating factor here. So this debate is about China partly, but it's also about what is the future vision for U.S. leadership. And with the Trump administration, I think there's more uncertainty around that, which makes this more of a struggle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Trump administration has this weird quirk that we talked about repeatedly on this podcast of the president being kind of decoupled from many of his deputies, and in this case, his own vice president on uh, how he regards foreign policy issues, right? For him, it's really about the trade war with China. And he talks about, you know, how much he likes Xi Jinping on a personal level, depending on the day of the week. Right now, I don't think they're on good good terms, particularly, but maybe they'll be back to being best buds after the G20 encounter. Um, but, you know, do you think it's a missed opportunity that, uh, you know, after Pence delivers the speech, um, you know, Pence, again, will be the one who's going to the usual round of Asia summitry this year. Uh, so he really gets to make this case, but it doesn't really have presidential support. But at the flip side, you know, days before Pence gave a speech, we heard Trump at the United Nations, you know, get up and make his usual spiel about um, sovereignty and America first being the way to go. And, you know, the sovereignty message, I think, really kind of contradicts everything that Pence was talking about. And if you're going to support a liberal interconnected world order and you're going to support things like a free and open Indo-Pacific and you're going to support norms and rules um, way out there in the South China Sea, which China argues that the United States shouldn't have any role in because it's so far away from U.S. borders. But then you have Trump effectively give a speech that, you know, really says that, you know, we're not going to push our way of life on the rest of the world. I think there's really, you know, contradictions here. And maybe this is something that goes away after the Trump administration and we do see more of that kind of coherent ideological struggle really develop. But right now, I think there's some serious contradictions in how the administration is pitching this. And, you know, I think the more dramatic example we had earlier was the release of the national defense strategy and the national security strategy, both of which identified Russia and China as um, great power competitors of the United States. But really, it took us a while to get to the point where we have the speech now from Pence that really puts things in starker terms. Uh, so I'm wondering how, how you guys make sense of that. Uh, that difference, you know, the personal role of the U.S. president here, at least to me, seems to really jump out. Um, I don't know, Shannon, what's your what's your take on Trump's personal role in this growing um, Cold War? I think it's pretty clear that on this, as so many other foreign policy issues, Trump is 
laser focused on the economic side of things. Um, and he, he's talked a little bit about things like the South China Sea, um, but he's most convincing when he's talking about how China is you know, taking advantage of the United States on trade. And he loves to talk about that again and again. Uh, but he also has this weird fixation on his supposed personal friendship with Xi Jinping, and he just seems very reluctant to talk in depth about China as a competitor to the United States across, you know, basically the whole of the relationship. Um, so it's hard to imagine Trump giving the same speech that Pence did without it being 90% economic and then the other 10% is a lump of human rights, security issues, cyber, things like that. Um, so I think that that is what's unique to this administration um, is that, as you said, there is this disconnect between the president who's almost entirely focused on the economic uh, field where, you know, a deal is theoretically possible, although I don't think it's incredibly likely that this trade war is going to end anytime soon. Uh, and the rest of the administration seems to have adopted a broader strategy of competition or, to put it less generally, confrontation. Um, and I think that the part of this that could potentially outlast the Trump administration is going to be the broader sense of confrontation. Um, you mentioned earlier that you don't think the Democrats are fully behind this, but I think there's a strong case to be made from you know a more leftist liberal foreign policy view um, that China is a competitor to the United States. If you look at traditionally democratic uh, areas of concern, human rights being at the forefront. Um, there's a lot of areas where you might argue that the U.S. needs to take a tougher line on China there as well. Um, so I don't think that this is entirely going to go away. I mean, even before Trump came to power around 2014, 2015, you started to see academics, policymakers, you know, past and future and um, all saying we need to change the way we approach China because the relationship has changed and our policy hasn't caught up. So I think this is an ongoing process um, that the Trump administration has kind of started, uh, but it's not going to end with them. And where this policy actually winds up is going to be shaped over the next, you know, five, ten years um, and the next couple of presidents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to oversell that. I mean, I actually found that. Um... You know, the the Bernie Sanders speech that I referred to was actually quite interesting because I think that's, you know, what you were mentioning earlier about this broader struggle now between uh, growing authoritarianism around the world. Uh, and it's not just China. You do have, um, you know, the Putin government's efforts to foment networks between various far right parties in the European Union to try and break apart the EU. Um, but certainly China is also a big part of this. Um, a broader authoritarian um, growing influence in the world um, and in world affairs. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting framing. And I think you know, Bernie Sanders did hit on a lot of those issues that you mentioned about human rights and things like that. Um, but also with the Democrats, I think, you know, there's been a lot of kind of overcorrection when it comes to talking about things like Trump's trade wars. Um, you know, we can poo-poo the idea of tariffs as a solution, but the diagnosis of Chinese trade practices, you know, if you look at the USTR reports on China under Obama and under Trump, a lot of those same grievances are still there. It's just that the medicine that the Trump administration has prescribed is, is quite different. But, but, you know, some people have, again, um, overcorrected on that front and um, said that, you know, oh, well, you know, China's actually the, at, the, at the vanguard of globalization, sort of buying um, Xi Jinping's line at Davos, uh, hook, line, and sinker. 
Um, so that, again, maybe isn't the right way to go about this. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you that there is a broader era of competition coming about. Um, but Prashant, I did want to give you a chance to uh, address this issue of the difference between Trump and his advisors when it comes to China. How how has that struck you? And I guess if you have any insights, again, uh, you know, from the perspective of various, uh, you know, regional states, um, which, you know, all of them have tried to struggle with this. In fact, um, I guess we just had an interview on Fox this past weekend uh, with the Chinese ambassador saying that it was very difficult for China to understand how U.S. Yeah. trade policy was being made between Trump and his administration. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there, there's two aspects to that. One is the, the personality of Trump, and then the, the second part is his influence on policy. So with respect to his personality, I think, you know, it, uh, we I find it a little bit strange now that, you know, during the Obama administration and a traditional administration, we always get told things like, you know, there's no substitute for a president's time for some of these engagements. And, you know, the president really has to be behind policies in order for them to be advanced. But in the Trump administration now, we're hearing officials say the opposite, which is like, you know, don't don't believe anything the president says or don't listen to him. You know, things are going really well at the working level, um, despite all of this happening. But, you know, that doesn't work in Asia. I mean, in Asia, people care about what the president is saying. If the president is saying something in an interview or in a statement or in a speech, People take that very seriously, in spite of what you know his officials may say. So things like, as you pointed out, I mean, if Trump is not going to go to this round of Asian summitry, and Xi Jinping or or another Chinese leader or Chinese representative is in not just the summit but in Asian capitals around and promoting the Chinese presence, that's going to stick out like a sore thumb. And I can assure you, there'd be no shortage of commentary saying, you know, the Chinese are involved and the United States is not committed to the region. So that aspect of Trump as, as a person and or personality is concerning. But then there's the other part of this, which is policy, right? So, you know, we have not in recent memory that I can remember at least or recall a U.S. president who is actually sort of thinking about saying publicly, oh, you know, I have a very good relationship and I'm in love with Kim Jong-un, you know, and, and I, you know, this relationship with Russia that's, you know, often Trump is not characterizing as much as his advisors is in terms of how tough the U.S. should be. Um, his personal friendship with Xi Jinping, a lot of these things contribute to a sense that, you know, in spite of what's happening at the working level, the United States in, in its promotion of human rights and democracy is not being consistent, right? And so that is a policy aspect that's very difficult for us to decipher. And then there's the other element, which is, you know, the, this book released by Bob Woodward and a number of other commentaries and stories that are coming out about how his advisors have to personally intervene to make sure that President Trump is not doing anything that is uh, seen as being detrimental to U.S. interests, whether it's with the U.S.-South Korea agreement or whether it's w with respect to troop presence in South Korea, um, and even the TPP, where you know th there was a failure in the administration to rein in President Trump's uh, instincts. So on this variety of concerns, I guess, the region is, is watching carefully in terms of what the president says and does, but I think with full concern that there are times in which his advisors can intervene and make sure that policy is on the right track, but there are other times at which this might not be uh, actually a workable principle, and that affects the certainty and sustainability of the U.S. presence in the region, right? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, completely agree with you. Um, so we're running out of time, uh, but Shannon, I wanted to give you the last word uh, since you're not as... Uh, as often on the podcast as we'd like. Um, but you've been a China watcher for a while now. Um, and I wanted to ask you, you know, Mike Pence in his speech, 
in my mind, didn't really outline a clear end state for this competition with China. Uh, competition for the sake of competition is not really a strategy. Strategies need to have some kind of end state. And we can we can read an end state into it, which is to change China's behaviors along a variety of axes and uh, eventually to maybe even have China go towards a democracy, if we can even imagine that, given the developments we've seen in China domestically over the past two years. But in your sense, you know, where where does this lead us? I mean, you said that we're going to start to see this, um, you know, grow into um, a more coherent policy over the next five years. But, you know, let's think forward to uh, the decades ahead, you know, to the centennial of the PRC in 2049 uh, and China's um, China dream objectives there. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of a lot more of Xi Jinping to look forward to as uh, now uh, China's emperor for life, so to speak. But um, where do you where do you really see things going uh, between the U.S. and China over the next few years? I, I think it's very concerning both for Americans and for the Chinese that Pence didn't really outline um, in Ingle, as you said, he he listed a lot of problems. He gave no indication of what the U.S. solution was other than trying to stop that, which is not realistic for a variety of reasons. Um, from an American perspective, it's concerning because it doesn't really seem like the U.S. government has a strategy. It's just recognized a series of problems, but you know, is there a plan in place to deal with them? Um, from the Chinese perspective, there has always been this suspicion that the U.S. is out to contain China. And if you don't provide a plausible alternative of what your goal is, which, again, the U.S. hasn't done, containment is going to be what the Chinese assume you're doing. Um, and various U.S. officials for decades have said, we're not trying to contain China. Um, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis was the latest to do that. You know, we're not trying to contain China. If we were, it would look a lot different than it does now. Um, that's not convincing to the Chinese, frankly. Um, so they are going to assume that the U.S.'s goal is to essentially stop China's rise, you know, however you want to define that um, economically, politically, globally, um, that that's what the U.S. is trying to do, is to halt China's growth, um, upend the China dream, you might say. And that's going to be very dangerous for the future trajectory of relations, because if China feels like that is the U.S.'s end goal, it's not going to place much value on cooperating with the U.S. across the board. Uh, and the relationship has had its differences, but you know, the U.S.-China cooperation has been valuable on a number of issues, um, the Iran deal, rest in peace, um, but also even the progress that we've seen on North Korea is partially due to China increasing its pressure, although that might be a thing of the past now. Uh, so I, I do think that for that reason alone, if not because it's just generally good idea to have a strategy, the U.S. needs to not that they're listening to our podcast, but take our advice and come up with an alternative for what the relationship has looked like. If you want to change business as usual, you need to tell the world um, and tell China what this new state is going to look like. Mm. Yeah, you know, listening to you talk, I also, you know, came back to the uh, older concerns that China used to have in the pre-normalization days that the United States was actually out to change the regime, to change, uh, you know, to remove the Communist Party from power. And that sounds a little ridiculous today, given the level of interconnectedness. Uh, but, you know, when China talks about things like the U.S. fomenting color revolutions in places like Xinjiang and Tibet, I mean, those paranoias still do exist. And 
with yes. with Pence leaving this so open ended. I mean, this is what I worry about. You know, we we've talked about tensions in the Taiwan Strait um, and the possibility of a U.S. China conflict. Um, if and when a conflict were to break out, uh, China needs to have some kind of assurance that the end goal of that U.S. warfighting strategy won't be to remove the Communist Party from power. Um, but obviously, you know, nothing Pence said really leaves us with that impression. But uh, I do agree that it is concerning that there is no end state. There is no kind of prescription for here's some things that China can do to fix these issues uh, or to work with us. And, you know, we've seen a breakdown in dialogue and whatever you have to say. I mean, I think U.S.-China dialogue on these issues is, is going to be necessary, even if it's not necessarily going to be immediately productive. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess on that note, um, I don't know if we answered the question of whether the two sides are heading into a new Cold War or not. <laughs> um, but I think uh, I think I'm a little bit more convinced uh, than I was at the onset of the podcast now that I think about it. Um, so maybe I'll say, yeah, we are heading into a little bit more of an intense era of um, competition and potentially ideological conflict. Um, but to both of you, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, so Shannon, uh, thanks for joining me. We hope to have you back on soon. Yeah, uh, hopefully less, next time will be less depressing. Yeah, well, you know, maybe we'll talk about Taiwan next time. That's always that's always fun. How is that less depressing? <laughs> um, and Prashant, thanks always for joining me too. Yeah, good to be with you. Uh, for our listeners, if you uh, liked what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe on either iTunes or Google Play so you can keep up with future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while but you haven't left us a review yet on either of those services, please do so. It really helps get the word about the show, and we always appreciate it. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.